0: I hope you are. Um, Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for hosting me so kindly. Julian and I, we joke a lot that we feel like we're part of Vineyard because we seem to be ministering in into Vineyard and finding ourselves in context in Vineyard Churches more often than anywhere else. And really, we feel like we're amongst family when we're with you, so thank you. It's just such a joy to be with you guys. Um, I said in my seminar earlier today um, that I don't behave myself when I talk, and so I recommend that you don't behave yourselves either. It's so much more fun when we don't behave, really, Um, Because when we're trying to behave, what we end up doing is switching off the voice of the Holy Spirit, because you know he's very mischievous. And um, what ends up happening is we try to control what's happening, because we're trying to fit what's nice and orderly. Uh, So let's just give up right at the beginning, shall we? Let's just agree, yeah? Let's just agree that we're going to have some fun together, because I really believe that Holy Spirit wants to um, make his presence so known in this place tonight that our hearts will be transformed by the fire that he puts in us. And um, I'm just going to, let's pause for the preach for a second, okay? I, just during the worship time, I felt um, this uh, phrase going round and round in my head um, A cloud which starts as small as a fist will become a thunderstorm that no one can miss. And I I just feel like God is doing something in this season with you as a family of churches. And it's going to, it's not that it's small because it's amazing already what God has done, but it's going to be like a cloud as small as a fist. And in this season, God is inviting you, I believe, as a family, to celebrate the tiny, tiny cloud. Because as we celebrate that and as we recognize that cloud a thunderstorm gathers that impacts an entire nation and indeed the nations. And, you know, there's something powerful about how the kingdom starts because the kingdom starts in tiny seeds, in seeds that no one would recognize. It's small. It's, it's not what anyone would notice or expect. It's why when Jesus came on the scene, the people who were most learned in the Old Testament couldn't recognize him because he was too small and too insignificant, they thought. Isn't this the carpenter's son, they say in Matthew 13, because they didn't recognize the cloud as small as a fist? And yet the cloud, as small as a fist, becomes a thunderstorm that no one can miss. And in these days with Vineyard, God is going to do something so remarkable. And I feel like He's inviting you as a family to celebrate, to celebrate the ones and the twos who are coming in, to celebrate the tens of churches being planted, because soon enough there'll be hundreds of churches being planted. And so I, I just prophesy in this moment that what you've just been hearing, what we've just been celebrating, is Something that is going to become snowballing into a thunderstorm that will be unstoppable. And what God wants to do with this movement, uh, we haven't even scratched the surface of what God wants to do with Vineyard in these days. And so uh, I'm just super excited to be amongst family with you in this moment because I feel like something is going to happen that is going to take us all by surprise uh, because we can't organize the way God is going to move. He just moves, and then we organize around that, right? So um, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, Vineyard. Get ready. Right, OK. Um, John and Debbie asked me to share a message that I shared in Colrain earlier, uh, well, last year, actually. Um, and this is a message called, What the Enemy Wishes You Didn't Know. And I'm really excited about preaching this. This feels a little bit like a life message. um, everything that I'm going to share with you tonight is um, is part of a journey that I've walked through with Jesus. And I really believe that every point in this message is something that the enemy really tries to hide from us as believers. Because if we understand the words of this message, and if we truly take hold of what God is speaking to us, we become unstoppable. And the enemy knows that all too well. And um, as a springboard for the this message, we're going to look through the whole book of Esther. So I hope you're ready for that. We won't read through the entire book together because that would take most of the time we have, but I'm just going to catch you up on the story of Esther and then we'll jump into a few things. I hope that sounds okay. So the book of Esther is a remarkable one. It's a a unique one because it never explicitly mentions God, and yet the fingerprints of God are all over the story. It starts with the king of Persia, a man named Ahasuerus, who was the most powerful man on on, on the planet at the time. And at the beginning of the story, he wants to show off Basically, he wants to show the whole world just how glorious, just how uh, wealthy, just how over the top he is because he can do whatever he wants. And so he decides to throw a party. And we're told that this party lasts six months. Six months where he opens the doors of his palace and he invites all the governors and the officials to come in and they eat and drink and there is food in abundance and the wine is ever flowing for six whole months. Imagine that if the government of the UK said, okay, for the next six months, we're doing nothing at all because Theresa May is throwing a party to end all parties for the next six months. Well, that's what he did. This is historical fact for six months. All they did was party and eat and drink and have their fill. And at the end of that six months, he decided he would open the palace doors, not just to the important people, but to everybody in the kingdom. And for one week everybody in the kingdom was invited to come and eat and drink to their heart's content and after six months and one week of eating and drinking unsurprisingly we're told the king was merry with wine well go figure And. On the last day of the party, as the ultimate act of his glory, he decided to summon his queen, Vashti, to come and parade with her crown on. Most commentators say that probably means she was to have nothing else on, to come and parade in front of the officials so he could show off because of her beauty. Unsurprisingly, Vashti doesn't really like the thought of having to come and parade in front of a group of men who've been drinking for six months and one week, and so she declines. Now, in our culture, that might not seem like a huge deal. In that culture, that was unbelievable. For a woman to say no to a man was unthinkable. For a queen to say no to a king publicly, uh, well, it's a suicide wish. And the king is outraged. He's never been told no before. And here, publicly, in the moment which was meant to be the epitome of his glory, his queen humiliates him by saying no. So he gathers his officials together and they start talking, what is to be done about the problem of Vashti? And the officials say to him well of course you've got to throw her out of the kingdom there's no question about it not only has the queen humiliated you in this way but now every wife will think that it's okay to say to their husbands and clearly no one can live in a society like that and so vashti is deposed and they start coming up with a different plan which is oh king why don't you throw a humongous beauty pageant across your kingdom All of the virgins in the land will be brought in. Uh, They'll be trained up for one night with the king. Let's not sanitize the story. It's one night that they were to have with the king. And then the king got to choose whichever one of these virgins he most was impressed with, and that was going to be the new queen. And this is where Esther enters the story. She was a Jew, she was an orphan, and she was beautiful, and she was a virgin. And so she ends up being drawn into this find a queen pageant in Persia. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai, and he says to her, don't tell anyone you're a Jew, don't tell anyone your background, because he knew that her background basically made her the least of the least in the kingdom. But as God would have it, Esther wins favor with everyone in the palace, and over time, she wins favor with the king, and she, in fact, becomes queen of all of Persia. Now this is where the story gets interesting. One of the king's officials was a man named Haman, and he hated the Jews. And at this point in the story, he concocts a plan and gets the king to naively sign off on it, which basically is a death warrant for the entire Jewish nation. Mordecai hears about this plan, and he goes to Esther outside the palace, and he says to Esther, Esther, you've got to do something about this. Haman wants to kill all of the Jews. Don't even think you will be spared. You, you have to go. You are queen. Go to the king. Do something about it. And at that point, Esther basically says, are you kidding me? Don't you know that I'm a nothing and a no one? Didn't you see what happened when Vashti took initiative? Everybody knows that queen means nothing at all. I'm a woman, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing. I cannot possibly do anything meaningful in this moment. And yet Mordecai starts speaking to her words that bring courage into her, and we'll look at those words in a moment. And he starts, as he starts speaking, courage rises up in her enough to be able to think, maybe, just maybe, I might be able to do something. And so they agree to fast and pray for the next few days. And then after three days, Esther goes to the king. Now, it was law in Persia that if you went to the king without his invitation, if he didn't want to see you that day, the penalty was death. And Esther hadn't been called to see the king for over a month at this point. But nevertheless, after three days of prayer and fasting, she goes to the king and in. Incredibly, this evil king shows her great mercy and favor. And he says to her, Esther, what can I do for you? And she says, I would like to invite you to a party. See, she's a wise woman. She understands the king's love language. And so he says, Oh, awesome. I'd love to come to a party. And so she invites the king and Haman to a party. And so the next night at the party, the king says, Esther, what is it that I can do for you? And she says, I'd love you to come to another party with Haman tomorrow night. And so again, the following night, the king and Haman go to a party hosted by Esther. And in that party, she exposes Haman's plot for what it is. And she pleads for the survival of her people. And the king shows her mercy. And Haman is uh, executed instead of the Jews. And it's a remarkable moment where one insignificant, nothing and nobody. This woman who nobody expected would do anything significant changes the entire course of a nation. You'd think it was a Walt Disney movie, except it's historical fact. This is not fiction. This is something that actually happened. And I believe the story of Esther is an incredible platform for us to look at what it means to be the people of God, what it means to do the unthinkable, what it means to be unstoppable. Because I want to tell you, no matter who you are and where you are in life, whatever your background is, God has put you on the planet to do something remarkable. If you are alive, if you have a pulse, that means God has destiny for you. And so I think that includes everybody in this room. I hope anyway that it does. So the first thing from this story that I believe the enemy doesn't want you to know is that you're better than you've ever believed. Now, I know that Patty's spoken a little bit about this stuff in the morning, so I'll be brief on this point. But 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we who are in Christ are a brand New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I think sometimes in the church, we can treat the cross and the resurrection like it's a giant washing machine. Like all that happened at the cross is that you were a little bit grubby, then Jesus put you in the washing machine of his blood. You went round and round and round, and hey, presto, out you come on the other side, and you're now a cleaner version of yourself. The problem with that kind of thinking is that if you're now a cleaner version, it's possible to become dirty again. The enemy loves that kind of thinking. He loves to make Christians feel like they're exactly the same person they were before. They're just that little bit cleaner. Because the enemy understands this, that what you behold, you become like. And he knows that if he can get you to stare in the mirror and keep telling yourself that you are still the old person struggling with all of the old things that you were struggling with, that that's who you really are, then you will never ever get to walk in all of the destiny God has for you because the destiny God has for you requires you to understand that you are a brand new creation with supernatural DNA in every cell of your body. But the But the enemy doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want us to understand just how awesome we are now that Jesus Christ has transformed us. He doesn't want us to understand that Jesus became the very substance of sin, says 2 Corinthians 5, so that you and I would become the very righteousness of God. It means that every part of you is not a horrible old sinner. Sometimes we sing these songs, oh, I am a worm, I'm just a sinner. No, that's who you once were, but that person is dead. Patty did such a great job on this. That person is dead, and talking to the dead is a sin. So stop talking to your dead self. You have been raised a brand new creation. You know, psychologists tell us that um, actions actually are primarily driven not out of desire, but out of an understanding of identity. And this is where the church gets into problems, because we form accountability groups. Do you mind if I get a bit cheeky? Sorry, the South African in me is now coming out, five years in South Africa, and um, you go wild after that. We form accountability groups in our churches that focus on sin. I've been in them, hey, I've led them and we wonder why those accountability groups are not powerful to overcome sin. You know the kind of groups I'm talking about, where we all get together and we tell each other the terrible sins that we're struggling with, and then we all feel suitably ashamed about the things that we've confessed to one another. Then we pray about those sins, and we hope that the shame that we've now put on one another will induce enough fear over the next week in order to control our actions. And then we get together the following week, and those of us who've managed to control the desires that still rage within, but anyway, those of us, we get together and we feel ever so slightly smug, because we're not better than everyone else in the group because I actually managed to control my desires and you didn't. And so now we feel like we've earned some level of spirituality. And yet the next week we may not be so self-controlled and the same sin cycle goes round and round and round and round and round, and round again. And we wonder why we can't break it. It's because we're looking at the wrong person. When we form accountability groups around our sin and around our old nature, those groups are powerless to do anything other than to shame us into behavior modification. But the Christian life is not about behavior modification. It's not about coming into some level of morality. The cross is not about making bad people good, it's about making dead people live. And so when we come together in accountability groups, we've gotta stop focusing on our sin and our old nature. Honestly, it will not help you stop to sin if you do that. Rather, what we need to be doing is forming accountability groups around our new nature, around who we now are in Christ. If you do that, I promise you the sin issues will fall away because you will come into an understanding of who God has really made you to be. And the more you form groups where people pull the the gold out of you, the more you will become like that which you behold. It's a profound, (laughs) profound truth of the kingdom. You know in Ephesians 4 where we're told to speak the truth in love to one another, so often we use that as an excuse to criticize, but with like a holier-than-thou smile on our face because I'm saying it in love. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had that conversation when someone says to you, I need to have a conversation in love with you? You're like, oh man, I'm just about to be told off. You know, the problem with reading that text like that is that we don't understand that truth is not a theology or an idea. Truth is a person and he lives inside of you and me. And so when the Bible talks about speaking the truth in love to one another, the highest realization of what that verse means is not criticism of one another, but is recognizing that Christ is in one another. When we speak the truth in love to one another, what I'm literally saying is, Debbie, I see Jesus in you. I see Christ who is in you and all over you. And we start recognizing the gold of Jesus in one another. Listen, if we formed accountability groups like that, our churches would be transformed when we speak the truth in love to one another. Because Jesus is in you and Jesus is in me. Are we recognizing that for ourselves and for the people around us? Because I wanna tell you, you're better than you've ever believed. And the enemy is so invested in making us think less of ourselves, because if he can do that, that he knows he will stop us short of our destiny. If you look throughout scripture, every time someone thought less of themselves than what Jesus said of them, than what God said of them, there was a loss of destiny. In the garden of eden we see it and patty mentioned it this morning where the enemy comes to eve and he says don't you want to be like god well unfortunately she already was like god she just didn't realize it she thought less of herself than what was true of her and the rest is history right you see it in the israelites in the desert where they're Going into the promised land, they've seen what God has done and everything that he's capable of. So their problem wasn't with his capability. Their problem was was with who they thought they were because they look at the giants in the land and they see themselves as grasshoppers. And what happens is when they see themselves as grasshoppers, an entire generation dies in the desert. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's a lie of the enemy. Humility is recognizing where your greatness comes from. It's a completely different thing. And you know, as Brits, we can be really bad at this. We can play small as if that's spiritual. It's not spiritual. Disagreeing with what God says is true about you is not spiritual. Calling God a, God a liar is probably not a good idea. I don't recommend it. So you and I might as well start agreeing with what he says about us. And last time I checked, he never says anything small or insignificant about you or me. He speaks words of greatness and destiny over us. Are we listening to him? You're better than you've ever believed. The second thing the enemy doesn't want us to know is that we're more than the world's estimations. Esther has bought everything that her culture had told her about who she was and what she was meant to do. She knew she was a nobody, that's what everybody said. She knew being an orphan, being a Jew, being a woman put her on the bottom rung of the ladder in society. She knew the only expectation of her was her physical beauty. That was the only value that she had. And even that had lost the king's interest for over a month. She knew she had no value to offer. At least that's what she'd been told. And so when Mordecai comes to her, and he says to her, this is the moment for you to do something, there's nothing in her that can respond to that, because she's fully bought into what the world told her about herself. I'm going to tell you, you are more than the world's estimations. You were made for greatness, because you have a great papa, and he lives inside of you. There is nothing small or insignificant about you. If you are in Christ, that means you are a world changer. That's not up for debate. That's simply the reality of who you are. And the world will tell you, oh, you're just a weird Christian. What can Christians do anyway? Oh, Christians, they're so hypocritical, aren't they? They're so judgmental. The enemy will sow into that because he's heavenly invested in making us feel like the world's assessment is the ultimate assessment, But you're more than the world's estimations. And you know, the beautiful thing about the story in Esther is that Mordecai is a type of the Holy Spirit. The story for us shows us a little bit what Holy Spirit is doing for each of us in everyday life. And you know, I think sometimes as Christians, we can be uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit. And I think it's because we've given him a bad reputation by misrepresenting him within the church. So let me illustrate this. I have conversations like this with people all of the time where I'm told, you know, I was at work and I was, um, it was tea break, it was great, I was gossiping with my friends and then Holy Spirit came to me and he convicted me of my sin and I felt really, really bad. And then, um, so I stopped doing what I was doing. Uh, a fairly normal sentence that I'm sure many of us have heard and maybe some of us have said in a church context And so what we do is we give Holy Spirit the reputation of being the policeman of heaven. Like his job is quality control. Like every day, all he does is run after Christians, telling us how bad we've been and just how sinful we've been and you really better stop doing that and you ought to know better. And that's how we relate to Holy Spirit by and large in our everyday lives which is no wonder then that lots of people don't really want to have any intimacy with the Holy Spirit because they never feel great when Holy Spirit's around. But if we believe that about the Holy Spirit, we're not reading our Bibles correctly because the Bible never tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the believer of their sin. In fact, the Bible tells us something very different. In the book of John in chapter 16, we're told that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the unbeliever of their sins so that he will lead them to repentance. So his job is not convicting believers of their sinfulness, because last time I checked, the Bible says that God has chosen to forget our sins. But anyway, he doesn't come to convict the believer of our sinfulness, but Galatians 4 and Romans 8 make it pretty clear that he comes to convict the believer of our right standing before God, of our sonship of our righteousness, and so when Holy Spirit is speaking to you and me, He's not chasing after us to make us feel bad about our sins. He's consistently speaking words of affirmation, words of belonging, words of destiny, words of greatness, and the Bible tells us the thoughts of God towards us are as innumerable as the sand on the seashore, which means every second of your life, Holy Spirit is speaking to you, and it's good stuff that he's saying over you. We don't need to be afraid of intimacy with the Holy Spirit because in fact, everything that Holy Spirit tells us, empowers us and equips us to do everything God has called us to do. You know, the words of God aren't wishful thinking. When he says stuff over us, he's not like, oh, I really hope, cross my fingers that it's gonna be like this. That's not how it works. You know, when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we see that he never prayed for the sick. He simply commanded them to be healed. Because as Jesus said words in the very sound that he made, power was released to do the very thing that he proclaimed. So he says to the blind man, see, and his eyes are opened. He says to the lame man, walk, and power is released even as he says the word for the man to get up and walk. He says to the woman caught in adultery, where was the man, by the way? But anyway, I digress. He says to the woman caught in adultery, sorry, getting cheeky again, says to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. And sometimes we treat that like a last minute insult. Don't think that you got away scot-free even though you weren't stoned. No, we misunderstand what he's doing in that moment. Even as Jesus speaks the words, go and sin no more, it's not a word of condemnation. It's a word of empowerment because as he releases that sound, power is released for her to literally go and sin no more. He sets her free from the hold of sin over her. It's a beautiful moment. The disciples had seen this, which is why when Jesus is walking on the waves and Peter is in the boat, he says to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come to you. Peter knew how it worked. He recognized that when Jesus spoke a word, power was released in that very moment to accomplish the thing that Jesus said, which means when Holy Spirit speaks over you, greatness and destiny and courage. He's not just speaking sweet words to make you feel better, or He's not just hoping and wishing that maybe one day you might be, no, no, no. When He speaks greatness over you, power is released in order to do that very thing that He has proclaimed over you. Whose voice are you listening to? What are you tuning into? Because I wanna tell you, you are more than the world's estimations. And when Holy Spirit is speaking to you, he is releasing everything as he speaks for you to do the unthinkable, to be the unstoppable church, to bring kingdom on the earth, not just in theory, but in very real practicality. You're more than the world's estimations. Number three, you're not outnumbered. The enemy loves to make us feel outnumbered. He loves to make us feel like we're alone, backed into a corner, and all the demons of hell are against us. That must mean that every other Christian is scot-free all of the time, because we're the ones attracting all of the demons of hell. But anyway, he, he loves to make us feel that. Because if he can make us believe that we are outnumbered, then even in the moments where we're on the brink of breakthrough, we'll shy away because we'll feel like we've lost the battle before it started. But don't listen to the enemy, he's a liar. Let's just do a case of simple maths for a second, can we? I'm not the best at maths, but even I can do this. The Bible tells us that when the devil fell, he took one third of the angels of heaven with him, which means technically, if you discount God the Father, Son, and Spirit, which I'm sure you'll agree is pretty much a majority all by themselves. But anyway, let's just ignore God for a moment. If the enemy took one third of the angels of heaven with him, that means just looking in the angelic realm For every demon, there are two angels, which means it's not you who's outnumbered, it's the enemy. In any given situation, there are more angels than there are demons because it's simply maths. There exist more angels than demons. And I feel like the church has got so used to tuning in to the demonic in places as if that's more spiritual than tuning in to the angelic in places. And that's just insane. We become so focused on what the demons are doing in the room, rather than asking, what are the angels doing in the room? We talk about it. Oh, I went into that place. Don't go into that shop around the corner over there. I went in. I got a terrible headache. There's lots of demons in there. You know, when you walked in, you changed the odds because you have angels with you. Do you get that? You are never outnumbered. There are more angels with you than there are demons against you. That is simple maths. You better believe that in that moment where Esther was walking down that long corridor to the throne room on her own, every demon was saying to her in that place, turn around, turn around. You are way outnumbered. Turn around. You can't possibly do what you're thinking of doing. Turn around. I often get asked, how it's possible that someone as unusually small as I am doesn't get frightened standing up in front of people like you. Because, you know, this isn't so easy, especially when there's a light shining in your eyes, and I can't really make out your faces, but I know that you can make out mine. And I get asked, how do you do? (laughs) I get asked all of the time, how do you do what you're doing? You're one woman on a stage and you see that question doesn't really understand this premise, but I do. Because the reality is I'm not one woman on a stage. I'm one woman in many, many angels. I'm never backed into a corner and neither are you. I don't care what situation you're facing. And I don't mean that to belittle the pain that you might be facing. I simply mean it in this way, that you have so many angels with you regardless of how black the situation looks to you, regardless of how hopeless the situation looks. You are never outnumbered you are never backed into a corner when the enemy says it's not a fair fight there's an element of that that is true it isn't a fair fight but for him not for you you are in the position of strength stand your ground don't give way stay your course once you know what god has said about himself and about you and about your situation don't give way You know, the enemy is playing spiritual chicken with us all of the time. He's coming head on at us, betting that we will move first. But what if we don't? What if we don't? The Bible tells us that a part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit does not live inside of the devil. That means that if you exercise the fruit that is readily, readily available in the person of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can out-patience the enemy. You are not backed into a corner, you are not outnumbered, stand your ground. You know, the Bible in Ephesians 6 tells us what spiritual warfare looks like, and it looks like standing. It looks like not breaking ranks. It looks like standing together as a community. (laughs) Stand your ground. Do you know what? I just feel like in this moment, Holy Spirit is doing something. So I'm just going to go off off notes for a second. Some of you know that this is for you right now. And I'm going to do some ministry exactly where you are. If you know that God is speaking to you right now about standing your ground, I wanna invite you to stand exactly where you are. You don't need to move anywhere. I'm just gonna wait for a second because I know there's people who need to respond. Stand your ground. And in this moment, you're making a a sign. This is a moment where you're saying, I'm standing my ground. I will not give way. I've heard him speak over me, and I will not allow him to play spiritual chicken with me. And in the name of Jesus, I just speak such courage into each man and each woman standing in this room. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would pour faith into them even now for your purposes and your promises, that they would just know, no, no, they would just know to such confidence who you are and who you've made them to be. They will not give ground. They will be able to stand, 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 and once everything is done, to stay standing so that they'll simply be able to walk into their breakthrough because they will have outpatience the enemy. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Okay, take your seats. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Genesis 32. It's in the story where um, Jacob is going back to meet his brother Esau. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Jacob and Esau, twins, Jacob was the younger twin. He was not so great a guy. He kind of stole quite a few things like a birthright and an inheritance from his older brother Esau, and then he fled. And after years of living in a different land, God speaks to Jacob and he says to him, I want you to go back to your homeland because I want to bless you. I'm going to do you good. And so Jacob takes all of the family that he's now accumulated and all the wealth that he has, and he makes a long journey back from essentially being in exile towards his homeland. And there comes a moment in the story where we're told that A servant comes to um, Jacob from the party and he says to him, "Uh, I've got some bad news to tell you. Your older brother Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. That is not a good moment. Jacob is essentially a sitting duck and his very strong, burly older brother Esau is coming towards him with 400 men. That is not a good equation. And in the midst of that story, Jacob has this moment with God. And he says to God, God, I'm asking you to deliver me from my brother Esau for I fear him. And then this is the important bit. But you said, I will surely do you good. And so he keeps moving forward. Everything in that moment would be saying to him, turn around, turn around, bad idea, turn around. You misheard God, turn around. It's a sign your brother's coming, turn around that he stands on the promise of God. He stands on what God has brought in Revelation, and he says, this is the problem, but you said the promise. A little while ago, a few months ago, I was in a, a, a moment of moaning with Jesus. Ever get those moments where you're like, Jesus, you're just not doing enough, and you didn't do the thing that I thought you would do, and I'm not happy about it. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, so I was having one of those moments with Jesus, And I kept saying to him, this is the promises that you've made, but this is the problem. This is the promise, but this is the problem. And he said to me, he just stopped me short, and he said, look at your sentence, what's the problem here? What do you mean? I've told you what the problem is. No, 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 look at your sentence, there's a problem with your sentence structure. Well, this is a weird time to get into grammar, Jesus. I was really making a good point problem with my sentence is that it's the wrong way around. I kept saying, promise, but problem. Jacob was saying, problem, but promise. I want to ask you which way round are your sentences. Are you saying promise, but problem, as I was? Or will you stand your ground saying, problem, but promise? I want to encourage you to stand your ground. You're never outnumbered. Fourth thing the enemy doesn't want you to know, the best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. Before I say any more, let me just say that I love intercession. I love intercessors, and I really honor you if you, if you see yourself as an intercessor in the room, okay? I just said that as a caveat. The enemy loves to get us to do things that sound spiritual, but are entirely ineffective. He loves it, because if he can make us feel like we're doing spiritual things, but they're entirely useless, he knows that he's distracted us from doing something effective in the kingdom. I believe an area that he's really invested in is the area of prayer and intercession. And this isn't to dishonor those who are spending a lot of time in prayer and intercession. I'm just going to build one character, one type of intercession, which really is ineffective. And honestly, this isn't a moment where you need to raise your hands if this makes sense for you, but if it makes sense for you, please stop. There is a, there is a part of intercession which has started seeing spirituality as the same thing as intensity. The more depressed we are, the more we prove how spiritually we are praying for things. And you meet people who will be like, I'm an intercessor, and already the intensity has jumped like 20 volts, and you're not entirely sure why, you were just having a simple conversation. And they'll tell you, oh, I've been spending days and days in travail before the Lord, I have wept, and wept, and you don't know how dark the situation is, but let me tell you how dark the situation is. And then they go on to tell you how dark the situation is. And after that conversation, you feel thoroughly depressed. I'm not saying this to dishonor the hearts and motivations of these people, but what I'm saying is if that describes our intercession, then we really need to stop, because depressed intercession will lead you nowhere. If all you were doing in your intercession is weeping because the focus of the problem has become so big to you that you cannot see anything else, please stop. The best kind of breakthrough comes in feasting and joy. Esther understood this. See, Vashti and Esther did a similar thing. They both defied the custom of the day. It was just that Vashti didn't understand how to go about it. Even in this picture of hosting a party, Esther shows us something which is a profound truth in the kingdom, which is breakthrough comes through feasting and joy again and again and again in scripture. Psalm 23 tells us, in the presence of my enemies... You prepare a table for me. Where is the table? In the presence of the enemy. In the middle of the battlefield, Jesus prepares a banquet for you and says, sit down and eat. In the moment where we're thinking, this is where we need to get depressed, intense, anxious, possibly declare a 40-day fast. Listen, I'm not against fasting. Okay, fasting is awesome just before you start shouting heretic. The point is, in that moment, Jesus says, sit down. I've prepared a feast for you in the presence of your enemies. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, it says, the joy of the Lord is strength. And there's this come this lie into the church where crying and worship is wonderful, but laughing is irreverent. It's a lie because joy equals strength. And you know what? Joy is greater than happiness. It's not less than happiness, which means it will manifest as happiness and some because sometimes we start saying things like no 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 i'm really joyful deep down it doesn't need to come out in any way of course it needs to come out in some way sometimes i think wow your joy must be really deep down some of us are wondering why our christianity is anemic while we're constantly in the midst of battle that we cannot seem to overcome, I want to ask you, where is your joy? Because joy equals strength. Joy is not frivolous. It is not irreverent. It equals strength. And if you are in the midst of a battle, the best, best context for your breakthrough is feasting and joy. If we understand the powerful tool that joy is in the midst of the battle, then everything will become different about our warfare. Julian and I love intercessors, and we believe in the power of prayer. And in fact, we have asked a whole group of intercessors to keep us in prayer. And do you know the people I choose to be part of our intercession team? The happiest people I know, the most joy-filled people I know, because I understand this, that joy equals strength. And when someone is interceding for the health of my child, they better be full of strength. Joy is not frivolous. It gives you a platform for breakthrough. Can I tell you a quick story? So, when Julian and I got married, we both got married in our 30s. Some joy is breaking out, which is wonderful. I don't distract easily, so feel free to laugh, it's fine. (laughs) Oh Lord, it's brilliant. (laughs) When... <laughs> oh, it's great. Come on. Jesus, you're so kind. When Julian and I got married, um, we, both, we got married when we were both in our 30s. We'd um, both been serving Jesus before that. We'd really kept ourselves um, for marriage. And so when we came to get married, we were both so full of expectancy for what God was going to do because we knew it was the favor of God uh, all over our marriage. And um, we got married in the UK. Julian's family had flown over to the UK. A week before our wedding, Julian had a dream that his mother died on our wedding day. The week of our wedding, just before it, his mom was admitted into hospital with an illness. No one could diagnose what it was. It went from uh, one infection to another. They never actually found an infection. They were just guessing. Eventually, her body went into complete shutdown. She was admitted into intensive care three days before our wedding. She was induced into a coma. and The night before our wedding, the doctor phoned Julian to say, your mom is going to die tonight. We recommend you come and say goodbye to her. Jesus was incredibly kind and gracious to us, and she didn't die. And in fact, she's still alive today. But our wedding day was completely crazy for us. We were both emotionally totally spent. The entire day, we were waiting to get a call from the hospital to say that she passed away. It was just a completely... Well, it wasn't what we'd expected, that's for sure. And when we'd been believing for favor over our wedding day, this wasn't quite what we had in mind. And um, a couple of months after our wedding, we kind of did an extended honeymoon and we were in the States, we were in California, and we went to a conference at a church called Bethel. And um, uh, during the conference, there was a dinner time. We were all, all the delegates were together in a hotel having dinner. It was really lovely. Um, Someone from the Bethel team walked past me. They put their uh, their hand on my shoulder. And as they did that, the presence of God came on me in such a powerful way that I burst out laughing. Now, um, I'm really glad that John introduced me as a medical doctor, because at this point, it is important for you to know that I'm not insane. And um, uh, I, I can be reasonably intelligent in different moments. That being said, in that moment, I burst out laughing. Now, it wasn't like a sweet giggle that would have been okay, just about. It was like howling with laughter. I'm talking that kind of laughter, okay? So loudly that I started crying out of the force of the laughter. Everyone else is sitting, having their dinner. For the next hour and a half, I howled with laughter. I couldn't walk, so Julian had to help me into the car from the restaurant. He then had to help me out of the car into the meeting. If you've ever been to a meeting at Bethel, they have a prayer team at the door that prays for people as you come in. Well, I was a magnet for them, and they started saying, more, Lord, which is just a really mean thing to do. <laughs> it's like, why would you do that to somebody? At that point, Julian abandoned me entirely, went and found a seat somewhere, pretended he didn't know who I was. I crawled, this is no exaggeration, I crawled because I could not walk, because I was still howling with laughter. I crawled towards Julian, lay on the floor, howling through the entire meeting. At the beginning, I just kept saying, stop it, Jesus, stop it, Jesus, stop it, Jesus. That was the extent of my spirituality. I was like, I don't know what this is, but I want it to stop. After about 45 minutes, I realized it was not going to stop and I needed to engage with whatever he was doing. And he started speaking to me lots of different things. He started speaking to me about our wedding day, started dealing with some disappointment in my heart. But he said to me, You've been in a battle and you didn't know what to do. I am teaching you warfare. Next time you are in a battle, this is what you are to do. You are to get so happy in God that you overflow with joy and you laugh at the lies of the enemies because Psalm tells us that God laughs at the enemy. It's an entirely godly thing to do. Well, about a year after that, Julian and I were in a much bigger battle than the one we would faced around our wedding. The situation was hopeless, and in fact, there was so much death around us, I didn't know what to do. And just at the point where I was about to give up, I was so over it, and I felt so bruised and so beaten, I remembered what God had taught me about warfare. And I wrote on a piece of paper just how hopeless the situation was. And I stood on that piece of paper and I put some worship music on, and you know the laughter that's happening in this moment is powerful for this story, because this is strength. This is strength being deposited right now in the room. I stood on that piece of paper and I worshiped and I worshiped until I could find some happiness in God. And it took me a couple of hours, but do you know what? In that moment, the verse that says he turns ashes into beauty became something so tangible in my heart. Nothing in my situation changed. And in fact, the baby that we were carrying still died. But the point is that Jesus changed everything in my heart in that moment, because I want to tell you, joy equals strength. Some of you are facing a battle and you've not known what to do and you feel like the waves are overwhelming you. I wanna tell you, find your joy in God. Start laughing at the lies of the enemy because what he tells you, every single word of it is a lie and is not to be believed and is not to become your reference point. Find your joy because therein lies your strength and God knows you need strength in your battle. I wanna tell you the best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. And you get to decide who sits at your table when you sit down to eat the meal that Jesus has prepared for you. So fear, go away, thank you. You don't get to sit down at this table with me. Anxiety, go away, thank you very much. You don't get to sit at this table that Jesus has prepared for me. Depression, there's no room for you here. This is a table between me and Jesus. You don't get to sit here. You get to decide who sits at that table with you and Jesus and I suggest you make fear anxiety depression and anything else push off they're not allowed to be seated there last one and we're coming into land you guys doing okay yeah have a good laugh Have a good laugh. Visualize the lies that he's been telling you and laugh at them, they're ridiculous. Last one, the father is kinder than you can ever imagine. Even in this story, the evil king gives a picture of the incredible kindness of our father as mercy is extended when everyone expected judgment. You know, our Father is so incredibly, breathtakingly kind. So often as Christians, we've, we've misunderstood the discipline of the Lord. And because we've misunderstood the discipline of the Lord, we become fearful of the Father. Because here's what we've done. We've understood discipline actually to be punishment, even though we use the word Discipline. The difference between discipline and punishment is this. Punishment repays you for your past. Discipline is empowering you for your future. They're entirely different things. I want to tell you that jesus on the cross took every ounce of punishment for your sin upon himself past present and future there is no sin that you can ever commit that would require the punishment of god and so when something bad happens to us we don't need to suddenly look back at the week before and think is this god disciplining me, which actually means punishment, disciplining me for the thing that I got wrong last week. No, God will never punish you for anything that you've done. The discipline of God has got nothing to do with where you've made mistakes or where you've sinned. It's got everything to do with empowering you and equipping you for the future. When the athlete disciplines disciplines his body, it's not because he's trying to punish himself for what he got wrong. It's because he's trying to grow some muscle in order to win the prize. When God disciplines you, it's got nothing to do with any sin that you've ever committed. When God disciplines you, it's about growing spiritual muscle on you so that you will be able to claim the prize of your destiny. Do you get it? God is not interested in punishing you. The Father is kinder than we can ever imagine. And there's this beautiful moment in Luke four where Jesus expresses the incredible breathtaking of kindness of God when he stands up in the synagogue and he's handed the scroll and he begins to read and he reads this profound prophecy from Isaiah, and I'm going to read the words to you. He says, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then we're told that Jesus rolled up the scroll and he sat down and he said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a wonderful moment, but you know what the most profound thing is that it's not what Jesus said, it's what Jesus didn't say, because if you know the prophecy from Isaiah, Jesus left out the last line, which is the day of the vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus leave that out? It's because he in himself swallowed up the day of the vengeance of our God. So Jesus for you and me is the favor filled full stop of heaven. If you want to know what God thinks about you, it's this favor if you want to know what God's saying to you, it's this, favor. Because right here, Jesus finishes everything that, Jesus, that God came to show about himself in this, the year of the favor of our Lord. You are living in a never-ending year of the favor of the Lord. The Father is kinder than we can ever imagine. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home. And I'm an introvert, so I like alone time. But my children don't really understand introversion. As as much as I try to explain it to them, my my three-year-old kind of, my one-year-old's really not getting the idea yet. They follow me around all of the time. There are moments where I go to the bathroom just to get a moment on my own, which is pointless because then I have two pairs of hands smacking on the door, Mommy, come out, or let us in, let us in. They're chasing me down. You know, Psalm 23 says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. I wanna tell you the goodness of God is chasing you down. The goodness of God is inescapable. There is nowhere you can go, much like me at home with my children. There is nowhere you can go to hide from the goodness of God, because his goodness is chasing you down. You have a target on your back for the goodness of God. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Not maybe, not only on the days when I've been really good, not only on the days where I've fasted and prayed, not only in the days where I've read my Bible, not only on the days where I'm feeling particularly close to Jesus. No, surely goodness and mercy will follow me every single day of my life. I wanna tell you, every single moment of your life, God is chasing you down with his goodness. It is inescapable, it is inevitable because he always hits his target, you are being chased down by the goodness and the mercy of God. Why don't you stand with me for a moment? Why don't we just open up our hands? It's been a wonderful, incredible conference, hasn't it? But I feel like God wants to do just that little bit more this evening. <laughs> hey. Hey. hey! Hey! You don't need to be a prophet to see that joy is breaking out in the room. You know, you don't have to be afraid of laughter in church. I think sometimes we're worried that I'm doing it in the flesh. Well, it's really difficult to laugh otherwise. In fact, I suggest anything that you do, you should do it in the flesh because it works better that way. We don't need to overthink it. Jesus is kind, he's really good, and joy equals strength. And some of you who are laughing, I know that you need to be laughing at the lies of the enemy. So feel free to respond to the goodness of God. I just wanna lead us in saying, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. Why don't we just raise our hands and keep speaking that truth over us. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. Every single day of your life, every single second of your life, it is a fact, it is unshakable. He is not a liar. He will not change his mind. Surely his goodness is your portion. Surely his mercy is your portion. Even if you're in the midst of a storm, I want to tell you his goodness will find you there. Even if you feel like you're backed into the corner because that's what the enemy has been telling you, I want to tell you his goodness will find you there because your setting is a setup for his goodness, whatever circumstance it is, because he is wanting to display his goodness in and through you. And so I want to speak courage into men and women tonight who feel like every ounce of courage has been sapped from you. And the enemy lies have got ever so loud in this season. And in the name of Jesus, I silence the lies of the enemy. And we say no more to the enemy voice that comes to discourage, that comes to steal our joy, that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But we say no more in the name of Jesus, and I speak courage where there's been hopelessness, and I speak joy where there's been despair, and in the name of Jesus, we speak the life of God to come alive in hearts again, that men and women would have faith to rise up and say, surely I was made for such a time as this, because I want to tell you, it's not an accident that you are alive today. It is not coincidence that you've been born in this generation, but surely you were born for such a time as this, to change the world to shake the nations and to shape the nations and so i speak courage and faith into each and every one of you in this room and i say whatever your context you were put there to influence it whatever your context you were put there to rule and to lead and transform because you belong to jesus and he's the king in every single room